Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Hello and welcome to In the Know. Today I've got Henrik Werdlin, who founded Bark.co, the makers of Bark Docs and a number of other great lines for dogs. He's also the co-founder of Freehype, which builds companies. Henrik Werdlin. Hello. Hi. Author, apparently, of the Acorn Method. Don't sound so surprised. I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I can't wait to read it. I'm going to learn about it right now, and, and hopefully we'll share what, what you decided to put down on paper. And, and, you know, surely it is the accumulation of all your learning from running Prehype, the startup factory, and running BarkBox, one of the most successful businesses for pets. Subscription, right? Yep. Uh, uncertain times. We're speaking in April 2020, which is, you know, history will look back on April 2020, I think, at some stage. We're just trying to get through it. Like, I don't know. I mean, how's it been these last few weeks? And what do you expect the next few weeks? Well, I guess it's been surreal from all of us, right? For all of us, like we, I sit in Brooklyn in many ways, like look out the window and it's like a nice Sunday afternoon, right? The sun is shining and like everything is seemed to be okay, but then you open the window and you hear the the sound of ambulances kind of like playing you know a a constant background music on the outside and you open your your computer and and read the horrible news about how many people have die and then you you connect in slack and then online with your friends and fellow founders and colleagues and and everybody's a little bit kind of well, very anxious about the world. And so uh, it's definitely a wild, weird time. And uh, and I think kind of like a, a little bit of emotional roller coaster. What's been happening, without getting too personal, what's been happening in, uh, in business? I mean, how did the well, timeline go for you, February, March? I mean, like, I think for, you know, Bark and its product lines, you know, BarkBox being the best known one, we're fortunate enough that People are now spending a lot of time at home with their dogs and and I think are trying to just come up with more ways that they can make them happy. And, and our product is a way to do that. Uh, we've launched a number of other product lines over the years. We have something called Buck Bright, which is a dental product. And we have an, a kind of a home essential line with beds that we're selling on Amazon. And, and so what we're fortunate enough to see is that we're, we're doing well. People are still buying our products and we're able to deliver them. But obviously, it's things are changing all the time, and you see the unemployment rate and stuff like that. Then you, as a business owner, you get concerned about how that may impact your business. But as it is right now, like uh, we haven't been as affected as many others have. I have been hearing this from friends that run direct-to-consumer online businesses that they are seeing a lot of activity. I mean, it's most obvious in grocery and food delivery. Some of the folks that run those recipe kits, the business is just off the chart. And I suppose that's the experience you're having in, in the piece of, I, I mean, Bark is all online, right? You're not like... Yeah, well, we, we also sell in Target. And so we're in, I think in Target, we're in 1,800 stores. Uh, we sell our dental products in CVS. And I want to say there's 8,000 stores are there. And, and we're in all the major kind of like pet retailers. And so we have a, you know, a bit of our business there, but we are primarily an online business. But even some of the retailers, you know, people still buying stuff for their dogs. Like I was looking at the sales numbers for some of our retail outlets and 
And, you know, so far, like, people are, are still bringing home some toys and some treats and some other goodies for their dogs. And so, uh, but, I, you know, obviously that's probably going to change. You know, I, some of the big retailers now have created limitations of how many people can be in the store at the same time. And But most of our business is online. So, um, so it's, you know, even if the retail business kind of subsides a little bit, I, you know, we should be fine. And obviously, the interesting thing with pet uh, is that historically, that is a an industry that, you know, sees itself well through hot times. You know, people spend less money on other things, but they want to make sure that their dogs are happy. And so if you look over, you know, the many years of pet, the pet industry, it's an industry that has always been kind of growing and, you know, historically have been somewhat recession proof. People keep playing with their pets. I mean, isn't that why you have your pets? I mean, like they make you a better person than definitely when you're home. It's uh, something I read the other day that New York is running out of dogs to adopt because everybody who's kind of been thinking about having a dog now think that, hey, this might be a good time where they're spending all this time home and maybe their kids are home also and, and need something new to do. And so uh, so I guess like that's a little shiver of kind of like a, a bright spot in this dark times. Do you think that um, pets can get the virus? I don't know. From what I gather, I think in general, anybody who says anything about the virus right now is, is currently like not really in the know. My, my wife happens to be a virologist, and then so this is her expertise, and you know, listens to nerdy podcasts like This Week in Virology. And my sense is that there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. From what I gather so far, it sounds like dogs cannot get it. At least that's what the World Health Organization have been out saying. I did see the other day that some of the the cats, the big cats in the zoo had gotten it. Maybe cats can get it. And so I don't know. But for what I know right now, for what it seems like dogs doesn't get it. But uh, I think this is probably not like uh, something that people have done too many studies about up until now. No, no. And uh, I guess if you're considering adopting a kitten at this moment, you might want to hold off after hearing about that tiger at the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> or maybe at least keep the kitten inside until that, that we know. Since things are rolling so well with Bark, I guess it doesn't feel like a high drama moment, but maybe inside your company and with your people and maybe with operations, you have some some anxieties about, you know, these essential workers, basically, who are delivering food. I mean, like, I feel we, well, being a startup founder is a high anxiety kind of lifestyle to start with. And so I think we obviously constantly are trying to figure out like, what are the things that could happen to our business and how do we best kind of solve those problems? And that is everything for supply chain to workers in the warehouse to delivery. And so there's definitely kind of constant things that we're trying to do. And I think like any other company, you know, we are a micro kind of community and but we're heavily in, influenced and affected by what happens around us people around us are getting fired and people around us are getting sick and so it's very tough not to kind of buy osmosis getting affected by that too we also a company that talks to a third of our customers every month and so we have what we call the happy team which is this great organization of ours that sit there and, and chat and talk and text with our customers. And obviously people are, are nervous there. Um, and so we try to help as much as we can with anything that we can do to be helpful. Wow, you have your finger on the pulse of, of just real life people through your, hey, how's it going? How's your cat conversations? 
Yeah, I mean, like we were fortunate pretty early that we invested heavily in, I don't like to call it customer service because I think that our Habit team does so much more, right? They are our R&D arm. They are the one who do market research. They do everything because they talk to our customers. And, and so a lot of our products being it, we have a business line called Super Chewer, for example, which is for more active dogs, like more durable toys. And that just came directly out of customers just calling and saying, hey, I love your toys, but could you make something that's a little more durable? And when we started the dental line, that was because people were kind of concerned about the oral hygiene of their dogs. And so they do an amazing job by sitting there and just having that conversation. And I think where everybody else gets a little bit tired when you've showed 8,000 pictures of your dogs, we're always very happy to, uh, <laughs> to send emails back and forth about it. Like, well, you cannot send us enough pictures of your dog. Wow. Yeah. Friendship, I guess, is part of the equation for you guys. So the direct-to-consumer, e-commerce, staple businesses are surely doing well, as you are experiencing. And, and maybe you have other benefits besides that. I guess, you know, online advertising has gotten a lot less expensive. Many companies are cutting back. What are you seeing in the marketplace? Yeah, we see that too. And I don't know really if it's because companies are cutting back or if it's because that there's just so much more inventory. You know, I would imagine that everybody who sits at home is using you know, Facebook and social media much more than they did before. And so we can definitely see that, you know, that CAC is getting going down, which is nice because it's, you know, been going off for years. So we're taking advantage of that. And so, yeah, I think, you know, in many ways, at least how I see it is there are some industries that are just completely affected by this, right? You know, hospitality, where just from one day to another, like the core business just disappeared. And then there are some companies like ours, which are fortunate enough to not be in that type of industry. And then maybe on top of that is already a direct-to-consumer, direct relationship, primarily online business. And we are able to kind of, at this point, weather the storm. And so uh, I'm sitting there with all my fingers crossed and kind of just feel incredible, blessed that we are not in, in one of those other ones. But well, you have built a lot of companies. I mean, we spent some time now on Bark and the Barkbox product and, and, and the related ones like Dental. But Bark came out of pre-high. Yep. And from your prior entrepreneurial experiences, can we talk a little bit about that and, and what you were yep. doing there and how that led sure. you to write this book, this book <laughs> sure. the, the Acorn Method? I think most founders specifically second-time founders, realize that, well, at one point they're moving from one company and they have this in-between period where they don't know what they want to do next. And it's kind of like a weird period because you don't necessarily know exactly if you're going to start something again. You might even be a little bit fatigued from the last kind of endeavor. You don't really know if you want to, you know, people will ask you if you want to be an investor and people will ask you, you'll join you know, a big company. And, you know, that in-between time, I've experienced a few times. And so about 10 years ago, when I was kind of in one of those spots, I decided to set up Prehype as kind of a, if lack of a better word, like a halfway house for second-time founders that didn't really know what they wanted to do next. And, and so that became kind of like a real hot punch of activities where founders were kind of like trying to help each other out, figuring out what to do next. And in that process, started a lot of different things. And out of that has come a bunch of startups that people have heard about. And we've been relatively fortunate that, you know, we've created real meaningful companies. We have a, a business side that helps large companies build new businesses. We have something called the Institute of Applied Entrepreneurship, where we teach 
our specific flavor of entrepreneurship at universities and kind of doing corporate education programs. And then we have kind of our own homegrown education stuff. And this week, we are trying also to add a little bit of like a, for society, like prehype.org, where we will teach for free people who are been made redundant or who are in industries that otherwise, you know, the industries where they can't work and they might not know how to make money on the internet. And so we're setting up classes where we for free will will teach people of how to make money on the internet. And so that, that was a, is such a huge range of different stuff, Henrik. I mean, it's <laughs> like you just did anything and everything, I guess, to get paid and not lose money in the early days of prehype. Also, we're trying to make companies. I think the way that I see it is that entrepreneurship is a way of trying to solve problems in a scalable way. And the more that you do it, the more you try to be systematic about it so that you don't make the same mistake over and over again. And so while all these things are very different and all the businesses that we've been involved in are very different, then at its core, there's kind of like different methodologies and, and kind of processes that underlies all those ones. And so there's kind of like, yeah, like a, a almost like a school of thought. And then on top of that, a lot of people that we have in our network is kind of looking for a way to extend the run rate they have until that they have to make a decision about what to do next. And so we ended up having a bunch of different activity from teaching to corporate kind of incubation that basically allowed us to create kind of inventory or like a liquidity so that founders could go in and take a gig and work a few days and then make enough money to pay rent and then kind of spend the rest of the month kind of working on their own thing. And so that's why there's like a hot punch of different kind of like business lines, if you were. But at its core, we have like a methodical way of trying to solve problems in a scalable way. And that is in part what we have, uh, what I wrote down in a book uh, called The Acorn Method, which is coming out here on the 28th of April. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about <laughs> it. So you figured some stuff out about how to solve problems in a scalable way. You tried it a bunch of times. Uh, one of the biggest outcomes from that is Bark. What are some of the other companies that you built at Prehype? A few companies that had you might have heard about that came out of the network was um, in your space, we did Managed by Q, which ended up selling to WeWork, which you might have heard about. And on uh, recently, a few years ago, we started something called Ro or Roman Health, or a, a few of the entrepreneurs in the network did. We had something called Fi sorry, Anco that sold to Fiverr. And so there's a, a bunch of companies that now collectively... Oh, cool. Have, have kind of like build and become big. Um, but the way that we see about it is that really we have these very talented entrepreneurs and we help them with liquidity and methodology and then they, they go out and, and build themselves. And so I think where other kind of like factories or studios have more of a model of kind of people come in and work for them, we have more of a model where we see ourselves more of kind of a, as a camaraderie or of a network of, of peers that are helping each other. And so it's a little bit different in, in how we're structured and, and how we do stuff. So you have definitely been part of a bunch of companies, and I'm sure many others that you didn't mention. And, <laughs> or the uh, one that didn't work, I didn't mention. <laughs> most of them usually, you know, most of them usually don't work. So the anchor, the, the, uh, the uh, acorn. Well, the acorn method is a both a kind of philosophical stand and some practical steps on how really businesses can build new businesses. And the acorn method title comes from the insight that at one point when you're building a business, something is kind of limiting your growth. And for trees, for example, for an oak tree, it is simply gravity. At one point, the tree just can't go any 
be any taller. And so what trees have invented over 380 million years of evolution is a system for regeneration. They basically have a way of incubating a version of themselves. And if you take the oak tree, which is one of the most successful trees in, in history, they have acorns. And so what they do is they take a little bit of their DNA and they, in a clever way, find fertile ground in kind of like its vicinity. And then it drops kind of like a specific little package with a little bit of fertilizer and some principles of how to grow. And then it supports it actually through the root system. And so what I noticed that we've done with companies, both you know, what I noticed what like the Apples of the world and the Googles of the world have done, but even what the Barks of the world have done and been successful with is really do exactly that. Realize at one point, you can't just build your business bigger. You have to look at how can you regenerate yourself and create not just a bigger tree, but a forest around you. And so the book is really describing that kind of strategy. And then with some very practical kind of steps on, on how to do it. What an interesting way to look at the topic of innovation. Certainly there are many businesses that can't be 100 times bigger than they are today. It's sort of wasted on them to say, oh, go do 10x logic. And your point is the capabilities that you have can take you to new markets. In fact, if you look at just the S&P 500, companies now are spending much more money than they did before, and they're growing less quickly. That's because that they are now getting not just kind of limited by its own ability to growth, but they're also getting disrupted from a lot of different kind of angles. You know, they are disrupted by tech companies moving into their space, disrupted by startups that are looking at the most high margin sides of their business and going in and making a play for that. And sometimes it's structural. It's uh, you know, the internet or different behavior or mobile phones or it's pandemics. And so what companies I think have forgotten or have lost the ability to is to do exploration and experimentation and having kind of like a anger of entrepreneurship and really kind of be the hunters of new opportunity. What they have done in the past over the last 20, 30 years, they've been very good at harvesting the business models and the business lines that have been established in the past. And so I feel it's important for any companies at pretty much any size, any organization, to really build up that muscle where you understand how do I find the right talent and create the right structure and then identify the right opportunity space and then kind of find a system where I can kind of over and over again build new products and services. So at one point that you might even see that the new products and service lines become bigger than the old one. And if you look at like the apples, for example, the, the apple of the world, you know, a lot of people forget that that used to be an MP3. You know, that was a desktop computer. Then it was an MP3 player. And, you know, at one point it became a phone and now they're becoming a media and service company. And so being able to understand how to do that over and over again, I feel is the 21st century way of building high growth companies. I guess in startup land, people talk about pivots, but th that's not what you're talking about here. I mean, the way we built Notel, weirdly enough, is we were building a collaboration software company where we had these online workspaces. People could work together. Interesting idea. You know, it wasn't quite chat. It wasn't quite video. It was more about what's the room? Like, where's all our materials? Where's our stuff? Where did we talk, what did we say, what did, how did we summarize it? And that was called Note, K-N-O-T-E. But even as we were building that, and as we hit our like million dollar revenue run rate in 2014 and 15, 
we had a side project, which we ourselves were running, and it was sort partly for us, where we let some other companies share some of our of our building. Now that business is 500 times bigger. It's like, <laughs> yeah. But, but what's the system? Like, what's the process? I mean, for me, I would consider that simply being open-minded, letting things that work keep working, and um, always being disciplined about where to put more energy. But I don't think it was a really like intentional process for us when we were a tiny company running Node. It's just like the entrepreneurial way, I guess. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. I think you're right that that is the entrepreneur's DNA, right? It's kind of like they're very untethered to kind of like the normal way of doing stuff. And so I think it happens quite often for founders. I think as a company grows, and, and so I think there is also quite a lot of literature out there for people who want to build a company from scratch. You know, you have the Lean Startup methodology, which obviously has been very successful in, in terms of kind of creating terminology and, and methodologies for, for founders. I think if you look for companies that want to do this, there isn't a lot of stuff and there hasn't really even been terminology on how to kind of do these things. And where I think you can be a little bit more ad hoc in the early days as a startup founder, I think as a company, you need to become more methodical in doing this because you have a very high risk of failure when you do these things. And so creating process makes you less likely to fail. And I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, we, for example, at Bark launches a lot of products and services all the time. And one of the tools we use is what we call signal mining. And signal mining is really coming up with a thesis often provided to us by our customers. But instead of kind of investing 12, 18 months of resources to build it, we basically go out and try to make landing pages to see if people are willing to commit to it in the way that we kind of have envisioned it, we can solve the problem for them. And then receive people mightily. And we do this in all things. Like uh, we have a successful pullback business line. And one of the things we have is that we have funny quotes on it. And so this might be I think we call it propaganda and it's like make logs, not war and things like that. But before I would pick the slogans, I would buy Instagram ads with all the different slogans, maybe 30 or 50 of them, and then I'll pick the eight one that people click the most on. And those are the ones I'll print on the backs. And so 
this for me is is part of like being a little bit more of methodical um, and in many ways and i know that's your background kind of like a more scientific about like how you built and so it's a little bit less of a gut feel and a little bit more of let's have a thesis let's assume that we're wrong or, or at least let's make sure that data you know tells us we're right before we go out and put a lot of extra resources against it well that's a classic startup move i mean when i um see early companies i always ask hey why are you building a product? You should just be buying a few ads to see if anyone cares about what you say. But you're saying even in a larger company, the very first step in product development and ideation is tested with the customer. What I'm saying is not very like genius and different for any startup founders oh, out no, there. Oh, no, it's terrific. It's terrific. But, 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 but you're but recommending my, my, it as a way of testing ideas. Don't just my, sit in a conference room. Ask your executive, hey, what do you think? You know? Exactly right. And I think my point is that most people who work, who might listen to this and who works in larger companies, it will more resonate that you pitch something for a long time. Everybody has said no. By the time that you finally get everybody to say yes, then you spend like six months talk about it. And by now, like everybody has bought in. So now it has to work, right? And so you get your two, five million dollars to kind of do this new project. And then you launch it, but the world has kind of moved on. So customers don't care. But like now everybody has bought into it. So now you throw 10 million, 20 million at it. And by the time that you're kind of done with it, 18 months have gone, you spend 10 million dollars and like somebody poor soul have to inherit this project that's not going to go anywhere. If you instead think about just that one meeting with five executives, that probably costs the money, the company $1,000 an hour. Yeah. You could have spent $500 and run against 5,000 people from ad and had some data. Exactly right. You wouldn't need a meeting. And you know what? The best thing would have been you found out that the customers didn't care about it. Because then you don't have to spend your next 18 months working on something that won't work, right? And I think as a founder, one of the most important assets we have is our time, right? You know, there's nothing worse than the startups that we've built that, you know, some of them failed, sure, and some of them succeeded. But the worst one is the one that just lingers forever, right? And so we end up spending mm -hmm. five to eight years on something that basically is not really a business. Yeah. And so yeah. I think yeah, for stuck. me... And companies are more likely to do that because of pride and bureaucracy. Yeah. And I think to be honest, like if you're a CEO, like take your company and you were to say, hey, I'm going to start a new initiative. I have this idea for something we could do. It's difficult to go to your tech team because they would kind of like build something on the infrastructure or half. You can't really go to your biz dev team because they're more doing partnerships. The creative team is probably not the right team. The marketing team is like, so there isn't really a natural place where building from zero to one is really kind of has a home. And so what you have, meanwhile, you have a lot of entrepreneurial people who are running around in these organizations that has the skills and would like to do it, but they just don't know like who to go to. And so I think what's happening there is a lot of the talent then go across the street and, and rent like an office in, in, in your company. And then they go and start to compete against the company that taught them all the things that they know. I think I've read somewhere like 72% of successful startup companies kind of got ideated while they were working for a company before, you know. So I think this book is not necessarily kind of the answer, but for me, it's taking 10 years of how do you incubate well, and then trying to create some terminology and share some of the best processes that we've had so that really we can all become better at doing this. So Apple was an example you gave of a really fluid and creative organization that managed to jump from one opportunity to the next bigger one, the next bigger one. Who are like a few more companies that you quite admire for their intrinsic capability, their people and their culture and 
how fast they can move to new things. I mean, like Amazon for me stands out as an organization that really have mastered embracing experimentation uh, at a very impressive level. It's just mind blowing to me that you have a company that used to be selling books and now they're one of the world's largest cloud computing software and they own Whole Foods and like they do everything. And so I, I think they are a, a good example of somebody who really embraced this. I think Microsoft is showing kind of like some traction in being able to come back, like, you know, having many years where they were considered not doing it and then suddenly kind of like changing in that culture. A lot of the tech companies are really doing that. The problem with some of the tech companies is twofold. One is, I think, when you use them, then the answer is often, well, they have so much money that it's easy for them which is one of the reasons why I felt that we had to invent another way of talking about it, thus acorns and, and oak trees, because that people get almost like you know defensive when you just say, well, Google can do it. And the second thing is that I think that companies, that a lot of companies out there that's built on real good values and have real talents and patents and distribution powers and a lot of different things that we as founders would love to have, but just don't have the internal structure to do so. So I think there's a bunch of companies that I think uh, Nike have done interesting things with their incubation efforts. They built, for example, like a cool kids club, a, a new kind of membership service for, for parents. I think a, a lot of people are, are trying, but it is very difficult. And as you know, these startup efforts fail more than they succeed. I'm excited for the book. When does it come out? Come out the 28th. And mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, I'm excited too. Like I'm, I've never done it before, so I'm... You know, I think all founders have a little bit of imposter syndrome, so I was super nervous that people would hate it. But I sent it uh, to a, a few people that I I'd admire, and uh, and nobody's been uh, <laughs> been laughing me out of the room yet. So uh, so uh, I, I think I so think April it's a good twenty eighth. Yeah. So I'm gonna be excited to check it out, and it seems a very timely thing actually, because uh, there will be a lot of change this year in 2020, and people are gonna have to go plant that next acorn yeah i think so too i think uh, you know i didn't obviously didn't know about it when i started writing this a, a year ago or so but there were a lot of other structural changes kind of happening to companies already then and i think the virus the pandemic and the economic kind of replications that it's going to have it's just going to accelerate a lot of those structural changes and so i think if you're a ceo or cio or change maker in an organization i think you're really looking around and saying hey i can't really do another accelerator. I can't really, the M&A team is already busy. I don't know kind of like what are some of the new tools in the toolbox for building growth. And I hope that this book can inspire people to at least kind of look at it as a new tool. Sounds like you have a great shot at it. Thank you so much, Henrik, for being on In The Note. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love of people telling us how to spread great ideas. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the words and people will follow. Cheers. Thank you.